0: From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Hello and welcome to the Automotive ADHD Podcast. My name's Matt West. We are rocking it from the shadow of Pikes Peak right now. Looking at the mountain out my window. We've got some beautiful fall colors. Some of that fall weather is finally happening here in Colorado Springs. And I'm always a big fan of fall favorite season, in my opinion, the best driving season too. I mean, obviously you got the colors and all sorts of stuff going on, but you got cooler temperatures, engines like that sort of thing. It's good for power all around. Good thing. So we got a bunch of things to talk about today, but before we get into that, this is one thing I saw on a Twitter the other day, someone posted a photo of the, um, turn signals on a mini Cooper. And I don't know if you're familiar with the later model Mini Cooper products, but they all have a uh, Union Jack themed taillight motif, you could say, uh, where one side is part of the Union Jack and then on the other side, it's got kind of the other half of it. Well, they noticed that when you have the turn signals on and because of the shape of the Union Jack, if you have your left blinker on, the Union Jack, the shape of it, uh, the flag is pointing right when you have your right turn signal on it's pointing left making arrows that point left point left i mean how british is that you turn your right signal on and the right turn signal is an arrow that points left <laughs> i don't know i just uh, i found some amusement in that saw that on social media uh i mean i always found it weird too many coopers now especially i mean they're uh they're they're more made i think in the netherlands is what i was reading the majority of uh products are made there. They have their biggest manufacturing plant in the UK, but the majority of models still made in the Netherlands. Also owned by BMW. So German, England, you know what? Fine. what? Whatever, whatever. I mean, plenty of uh, Fords are made in Mexico too. So, uh, you know, England, Netherlands, America, Mexico. I don't know. Anyway, speaking of um, BMW products, uh, that's one of the things I want to talk about today is uh, how BMW is using hand grenades to test its latest cars and some of their hydrogen cars. This is really cool. must be fun to be working at BMW right now. Also, I'm really excited on a different note for the new uh, Toyota Beru, brz slash 86 combo that's going to be really cool i got some thoughts on that car we've kind of had some time to see it out and about now especially see it in the hands of some reviewers got some cool thoughts there also we're going to talk about storing car batteries we got you know the old wives tale that you shouldn't store it on concrete well we are going to debunk that that's going to be later during the show and we're going to talk about jdm car prices which if you've been trying to buy a car of any car, not just JDM. You know, it's it's been getting crazy. So we're going to talk about that. But you know, ladies, gentlemen, the often forgotten, but not by me, Mark II Supras. Let's talk about the first thing of the show, the first topic, which is, well, like I said, BMW using hand grenades. So uh, this comes from an article I saw on The Drive. And um, BMW, I learned <laughs> by reading this, that they have a Armored Division. Yes, they have the Armor Vehicle Division, which is a thing that BMW does. If you want a very, very, very expensive BMW X5 that is bulletproof, you can have that, which is cool. I mean, you could pretty much have anything so long as you have the money, but uh, that said... Uh, armored X-5. And so part of what they were doing, they issued kind of a press release talking about some of their testing methods. they will take their armored X-5, which is not only designed to withstand bullets to the windows, bullets to the body. uh, Also, it's designed to drive over explosives like IEDs and stuff. Um, And so what they do is they take their X-5, tell one of the engineers, all right, pull the pin, roll the hand grenade underneath it, blow it up and see how it does. And apparently they're rated to withstand grenades. Now this is even more important because they are talking about the new BMW X5 hydrogen model. And when you make a car that runs on hydrogen, you run into some, uh, fairly particular challenges. You have some fairly strange challenges that you don't have with a gas car. Uh, number one being that it runs on hydrogen. That's the big challenge there. Um, uh, You've also got the tanks and to have a hydrogen car that stores hydrogen, you have to have uh, those tanks that the hydrogen is stored in be really robust and really stout because no one wants to get rear ended and have a hydrogen explosion. We don't need the hydrogen equivalent of um, the Ford Pinto, Um, you know, that said, um, so they have to make those tanks really stout. So, again, they use hand grenades to test those, and that's even more important because they're now offering, like I said, a armored version of the X5. But then they're going to do an armored version of the X5 with hydrogen power. Because in case you want to run away from the mob, uh, but you want to do so in a green fashion, you want to be, you know, environmentally conscious... While running from the mob or maybe you are the mob and you want to be environmentally conscious well now is uh how you can do that now again it's just crazy looking at some of the prices on these two i mean many many hundreds of thousands of dollars for an otherwise kind of understated bmw the fact is though i will say their armored division really cool because by the time All the engineers and scientists there do the things, making the glass bulletproof, making the car bulletproof. I mean, for one, those windows are like two and a half inches thick. But on the outside, you can't even tell, which that's gotta respect that engineering a bit. So we'll see how um BMW's hydrogen-powered game kind of plays out. I think we've got some interesting, um, we got an interesting future, especially if we have electric cars and electric hydrogen cars. Bear in mind they're not burning the hydrogen in a combustion engine, they're using it in the terms of a a hydrogen fuel cell to make electricity and then power electric motors. But anyway, I digress. I don't know. Last time the Germans made something hydrogen, it didn't really end well. Um, just, uh, (laughs) just pointing that out there. But anyway, no, that's enough about that. Next thing I want to move on to is the new GT86. Oh, I, I am excited for this. All right. We heard about it a couple months ago now. What is it? October? It's been a few months, but now instead of just hearing announcements on it and seeing initial tests, there's actual reviewers who have them in their hands and they're actually driving them and they say they're so much better than the um, uh, the GT86s or the BRZs as well. They say that the uh, 2.4 liter engine, which by the way, if you are unaware, the new 86 does have a 2.4 liter as opposed to a 2 liter. It still is a flat 4, still is a Subaru engine. Eh, No, I'm not really a fan of that. But anyway, um, more on that later. They say that engine does fill in the infamous torque dip that was known on the previous generation, um, where you'd have that torque dip at a certain RPM and it would just fall on its face and then come back up. Now, I don't, I don't, okay, okay. like I don't really know how I feel in general still about the uh, flat four engines that are being used in these cars because I'm a fan of inline fours that are real rev happy, have a lot of, um, I don't know, peaky, kind of peaky power. They're not known for being very torquey, but um, I don't know the, uh, I feel like Toyota, if they had made an engine and I get the logistics of being a manufacturer with a slightly smaller volume sports car. Doesn't The numbers don't always add up in such a way that you can make a bespoke engine for a, um, a sports car. Uh, that said, I still think something like the um, Japanese market 3SGE Beams engine, which, if you don't know, that is a great inline-four that Toyota made for their Japan-only market uh, Altezas, otherwise known as um, IS300s here uh, in the U.S. Except, here in the U.S., those got 2Js naturally aspirated two jz's with vvt but that said toyota does have in its engineering credentials a fairly recent four-cylinder that is completely toyota in nature red lines at almost nine thousand rpm um and has vvt all of the good stuff i don't know i feel like an engine like that would be much more suited in the new 86 but then again i am a kind of outspoken Toyota fan, I'm sure plenty of folks who like the 86 BRZ platform really appreciate that that car exists under Subaru's offering as well. So anyway, I I digress about the engine there. Some great things that I like about the new 86 uh, and what I've seen about it. um, And I I do feel a little more qualified to comment on this just uh, because I own the original 86 as in the AE86. You know, I kind of have a... get it don't get your hopes up mine's pretty crusty they 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 mostly all are now but um my my 86 kind of still has that really light sports car feel it's really tossable these are all cliche journalist words that you hear a lot but it's true because that car has a you know rev happy little four cylinder in it just so quirky and so excited to to go around some corners i really love the chassis And I feel like that has been the benchmark. That's been what they've been trying to recreate with the previous 86. And they really accomplished that with the GT86. Um, They really did. I've driven a handful of those and they're fantastic cars. And I think what's also fantastic is the previous generation BRZ GT86s are going to be on the used market now for dirt cheap. These are going to be the next low buck drift cars. They're going to be hitting the bottom of their depreciation curve and you know five or six years ago or even more you would be seeing you'd go to like a local drift event and just see nothing but s chassis s13s you know stuff like that ripping it around the track now those have all succumbed to the drift tax and are um, very expensive uh, enough so that a lot of people don't want to drift them anymore because they don't want to throw them into any more walls um but i i think the um Now, the previous generation 86 BRZs are going to be the next great, like, low buck track car, drift car, whatever. I think that's fantastic. And that's something that comes about as those cars get older and as the next model comes along. So, there's that. Now, the uh, new 86, um, you know, it's a car that's still, people are saying, well, they increased the displacement, but they still didn't put a turbo on it. Now... I think putting a turbo on that car is still kind of sacrilege. Like I've driven them. Yeah, they're slow. Get over it. That's the point, okay? They're a uh, a car that's meant to be driven with a style that centers around maintaining momentum and and you know, using the car's weight transfer and shifting that weight in corners to to get the tail end out as opposed to just, you know, power oversteer. Um I definitely think that car is about feel, engagement, balance. Now, that said, I did watch uh Jason Kamisa, uh, Kamisa, Kamisa, you know the guy. He's um uh he's been at Motor Trend. He also is on uh Haggerty's YouTube channel now. Really accomplished, really accredited car journalist. Does some great stuff, by the way. As far as YouTube videos, he's he's always got my pick. He's fantastic. Well, he did drive the new one, and he did say that it accomplishes all of those things and more and uh, that's good to hear especially from a uh, kind of no BS journalist like him if it sucks he's gonna tell you so that's already got one check mark in my book I still want to drive one I'm waiting for my opportunity to that's going to be really um, exciting so uh, another great thing about that car the new one it still has a manual yeah oh yeah we love manuals yeah still has the manual it is good stuff Uh, probably the same manual that was in the previous generation one though um maybe with some different gearing. Toyota does, I believe it's a Toyota transmission with the Subaru engine. It's like a W trans. Um, some 86 guys might start calling me out on this. Um, but either way, who cares at this point, it's got a manual. That's good. Also, it's still a cheap sports car. That's what's great. Look at all this cheap sports car offerings we have right now. I mean, okay, this car is going to sticker for around $28,000, maybe a little less. There's not many cars that offer that kind of performance feeling, handling for $28,000. Like bear in mind, the base model Miata comes in at $27,000, but for the comparable hardtop that would be more um comparable to the, you know, uh new GR86 BRZ um you know, which is a hard top kind of a coupe, you would need the Miata RF, which comes in at $33,000 and also only has 181 horsepower versus 228 horsepower in the new 86. And they weigh close to the same weight. So I think the 86, uh, takes the win there. Uh, now for the record, I I do like the styling better on the Toyota version, the GR 86, as opposed to the BRZ, I think the front fascia on that has a more aggressive look. The the BRZ just looks so smiley and it it looks kind of like a catfish to kinda like think of like the catfish Camaros as people called them uh, from 15 years ago or so, uh, 15, 20 years ago. I, it's not as bad as that, but I, if you squint kind of hard, you could, you can see what I mean. You could see what I mean. So for the record, yeah, I like the Toyota's styling better. Also, I'm just sort of biased. I went into this. I told you I was going to be biased here a little bit towards Toyota. Um, still that car's not entirely a Toyota. You know it's a bummer. What can you do? We can't have, uh, all of the cool JDM cars and drive them. I know, I know it's, uh, (laughs) It is a bummer, but I am super excited, super stoked for that car. Can't wait to see them on the road. Can't wait to get behind the wheel of one of them, take it out on the track. Um, And can't wait to see the last generation of um, 86 BRZ twins um, come down a lot more in price. Like like I said, we're probably going to see those for really cheap. I mean, they've already come down to being less than 10 grand for uh, high mileage ones. So, uh, I mean, imagine being able to score one of those uh, for like, you know, 3,500 bucks, $4,000. I mean, I would do it all day. Drift car. Perfect. They're great. Drift Drift cat Yeah, drift chassis. There we go. Now that said, I've got some great things that I want to talk about in the next segment. We are going to be, uh, getting into a few other things about storing batteries on the ground. Should you do it? Should you not? Uh, we're also going to be talking about a squirrel who's particularly uh, industrious. How does that relate to cars? Find out after this.
1: And now for how things work with an engineer. Engines. Speed. And that was how things work with an engineer. For more of how things work, go to patreon.com slash throttle warrior. All right, and we are back From the break,
0: you hear those car sounds? Those car sounds could be yours. Send the noise of your car. Take a recording of it, a video of it. Email that to matt at throttlewarrior.com. So uh, also, by the way, I want to shout out, speaking of uh, Patreon earlier, I want to shout out to Jim and Harry for being the first members of my Patreon. You gentlemen are fantastic. And, uh, there will be many more things to come on Patreon. Of course, if you'd like to donate to the show, support your favorite podcast, I hope it's your favorite. That's a bit presumptuous of me, but do that. Patreon.com slash throttle warrior. So, uh, by the way, before I talk about batteries and, um, how you should store them. You know, the old wives tale about that. If you don't, we're going to go into it. I, I want to talk about this, uh, particularly industrious squirrel that was making the rounds on social media because <laughs> it, the, the squirrel loaded up over 150 pounds of nuts into a man's truck. Um, the squirrels, you know, getting ready for the winter, you know, as I was saying, we got these beautiful fall colors happening, Um, temperature is getting a little cooler. Nights are definitely getting cooler. Animals are doing their thing going into winter. And uh, a man went to go start his truck after three or four days of not starting it and discovered that there were nuts everywhere. Tons and tons of nuts um, that were uh, stuffed in the uh, engine bay of this truck, in the fender wells, even in the frame rails. Everywhere, every conceivable little pocket, this squirrel filled this truck <laughs> with, and they're they're the um they're big walnuts, by the way, um and uh, that's just fantastic. Now the poor guy, uh, this was um uh coming out of North Dakota, by the way, the poor man, uh, his name's Bill Fisher, uh, had to spend another couple days pulling all the nuts out of his truck all of them trying to get everyone out of every little nook and cranny he had to take the whole front fascia of the truck off, get them out of the fenders. Uh, and he said, he, there's still plenty in the frame rails that roll around when he drives. Cause he just, he can't get to them. So um, yeah, congratulations to this squirrel. And I mean, I kind of feel bad for the squirrel because this, uh, his stash has now been ruined, but what, what can you do? What can you do? Anyway? I uh, just thought that was uh interesting right there. Also would not particularly enjoy it if that happened to my car. That would be a pain. That said. All right. So the um, next thing I want to get into here is the wives' tale of storing batteries on the floor. Um, if you've ever been around cars, you've been around cars long enough, you will hear guys, even well-seasoned mechanics, um, will say that you should not place a car battery on a cement floor because it's gonna cause it to discharge faster. And um, I'm here to tell you that that's BS, total garbage. It is not true. And I got a lot of sources here to back this up, but uh, where, where it comes from, by the way, this is a wives' tale, again, that has been perpetuated throughout the decades. And uh, at one time though, much like many sort of mechanics tales, wives' tales, um, it it is rooted in truth. And that truth is back when car batteries were made of different materials. Uh, they had, you know, for instance, say, glass uh, containers holding the, um, the lead plates and the electrolyte solution. Uh, and then those were boxed up in wooden boxes that were then coated in tar, for instance. And um, those batteries, uh, when set on concrete and having the temperature differential of the concrete could, in more humid climates, have some condensation buildup that would cause the wood to warp and then the cells to leak. And then that would leak out through the tar. And then not only would you have a little bit of a mess, you would also have your, your battery start to discharge. It would, it would damage the battery. Um, and then also as uh, later construction on batteries had metal cases, um, it was conceivably possible that small amounts of current could find their way, ground out through the metal, Go into the uh, uh, the concrete, or well, you know, dissipate, if you will. Uh, that said, um, this is just something that's that's not true anymore uh, because battery technology in cars. Think of it this way: if you could discharge your battery by putting it on a garage floor, then would it not discharge when sitting on the metal most of the time battery shelf in your car? Would it not find electrical ground through that metal? shelf in the same way it could through the ground um so there's one thing there now a lot of guys might say yeah but but I put a battery on my garage floor in it and it was dead when I needed it again and a lot of times what you find is um, that people just don't know when their batteries are on the way out it's uh something that's entirely uh, feasible to not know not really notice you know you get used to starting your car and having a a certain sound a certain speed to the starter motor which is relation to the uh, amperage provided by the battery. And over time, because it it so progressively goes down and down and down over time, you just kind of become acclimated to that. That's why whenever you put in a brand new battery in your car and you fire it up and you hear that starter motor where you hear that, it's like, wow, it's spinning so much faster. It's just, you didn't really notice over time that it had stopped spinning that fast. Um, So that's one thing that could be said about why people say, yeah, but I put the battery on the floor and it, it still did it. No, it's it's BS. Uh, plenty of battery manufacturers even back this kind of thing up, uh, saying that it is totally fine to store batteries on the ground. And especially because battery technology has just, it's just gotten better over time uh the way batteries vent the materials they use the plastics they use even the materials they use in the actual cells and the electrolyte all of the above not to mention you know agm batteries and lithium-ion batteries that we have now um those are are totally different now that said there is also kind of an offshoot of this mechanics tale about you know storing batteries in colder climates versus warmer climates the um popular theory is that batteries when stored cold discharge. And that's, that's not true. So as uh, there's a battery company that came out with a statement, uh, Pacific power batteries, uh, says that a battery stored at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, um, 35 Celsius, uh, for our non, uh, American friends, uh, 35 Celsius. They say that'll discharge actually twice as fast as a battery that's stored at 75 degrees or about 23, 24 degrees Celsius. Um, so a battery stored in a hot climate actually performs worse than one stored in a cold climate, which is completely contrary to, again, the old me- mechanics tale that it does that. Now, the reason people say, well, the battery's discharged in the cold, obviously that's gonna stem from the fact that everything works less in the cold. It doesn't mean that the battery has actually discharged it all or has lost capacity. It just means that it's not, able to deliver quite as much amperage uh, because those chemical reactions within the battery slow down in the cold now that also ties into the fact that when you try to start an engine in the cold, especially something big and heavy like a V eight. Um that oil in the engine is colder. Everything, those tolerances are just a teeny bit little tighter. The oil's colder. Uh, the starter motor has to work harder, you know, in the cold. Um everything just sucks in the cold, moral of the story. And none of those things help the battery, which also has a little bit less overall um cranking amperage when it's that cold, say sub zero temperatures um or you know even just sub freezing temperatures like honestly i don't blame everything for working less in the cold cuz i mean come on i work less in the cold so just uh throwing that out there now that said you know i am but a enthusiast i am but an enthusiast uh of working on cars i have a disclaimer no mechanical certification so that's why i'm going to come back to this topic Next week, in case you don't believe me, in case case you don't believe the battery manufacturers, in case you believe none of that, and I'm going to bring on an actual, real, honest to God, mechanic. Yes, I am going to consult Mr. OBD1 Kenobi, or as he's known by his real name, Brian. And he is a real mechanic, does a lot of electrical work, uh, is quite adept at that, building wiring harnesses, ECU tuning, all sorts of car work. And he's going to give us his thoughts on the battery topic in case you don't believe me so that's what we are going to do gonna stick around for him coming up next week we're also gonna throw all sorts of other automotive questions at him as well like some mechanic myths hopefully gonna debunk more of those so you gotta Got to stay tuned. Make sure that you uh, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you do listen to it on. I want to remind you, of course, that you can listen to it on Spotify, Apple, Google, all of the above. So that said, we're going to carry on into the third half of the show with um, JDM cars and why they're so expensive. And should they really be that expensive? So stick around after the break.
1: Every day, thousands go without the ability to buy necessary and life-saving parts. Parts like turbos, coilovers, and wheels. I'm Steve, turbocharged BRZ. It doesn't run because I can play with my connecting rod through the hole in my block. Project cars sit unfinished, waiting for parts, collecting dust. My name is Todd, and I bought a rotary. It's okay, bro, we'll swap it. But no more. You, yes you, can make a difference. For as little as $5 per month, you can put an end to Project Car's suffering and support your favorite podcast. Patreon.com slash Throttle Warrior. Donate now and receive special perks. Sponsored by Autoholics Anonymous and the Speed Council.
0: And we are back for the third segment Of the show. Of course, if you have ever regretted leg day at the gym after uh, uh, putting that aftermarket clutch in your car, go ahead, follow this podcast on your favorite platform. Also, of course, uh, email your car sounds into Matt at throttlewarrior.com. Want to hear those? I want to put them in the show. So, your car on this show could be good. Just saying. Now, the um, next uh, thing I want to talk about today, uh, before we talk about JDM cars, uh, and are they really out of control price-wise? And uh, I I do feel qualified to discuss this as a fine connoisseur of um, JDM cars that I really can't afford. Uh, Anyway, before we get into that, did you see uh, last month that the um, Bring a Trailer uh, Instagram page got hacked? (laughs) And uh, so it it got hacked out of the blue, and somebody uh, started posting um, weird selfies of models and just random people. It was very strange. Um, and they just kept feeding the whole, filling the whole page up with the same picture of the same person without any real intent. It didn't seem like they were trying to market anything. It's just very, very strange. Um, now with the internet being the internet and us being car people on the internet, people started commenting hilarious things on the, uh, selfie photos. Like, is it rust free? Does it have a clean title? How many miles? Um, and, uh, as to say, uh, there was no answer on if the models were rust free and had how many, however many, many miles. So, uh, yeah, go figure, go figure. Uh, good news is I believe, uh, bring a trailer did get their Instagram, Instagram account, uh, back under control. So, uh, now there's pictures of cars there again, instead of weird people. Cause you can't, Yeah, you can't (laughs) it doesn't work quite as well with the um the models on there. It just doesn't. So anyway, speaking of bring a trailer, um, how have you noticed that anytime you search a cool JDM car on Bring a Trailer, like uh, you know, a Supra or NSX or AE eighty six, um, you and you look at the graph, the prices have just done nothing but go up over the past couple of years, and they are just going up without halt without without stopping they are uh, just continuing to rise even on weird JDM cars that aren't part of you know the you know say fast and furious hype or initial d craze i mean stuff like honda del souls. i saw a del sol on there going for way over like 13 grand and it's like it's a del sol i never considered that to be all that rare of a car but alas here we are and Is here we are a good spot? I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like paying $40,000 for a, you know, uh, like a Civic wagon, even though they're a little rare. I don't know. It's uh, one of those things that kind of seems like some way that it's frustrating as a car fan who wants to own these cars. But obviously, we don't want these cars that we own to go down in price. I mean, we do want to be able to, you know, I'm not going to use investment as a word because I don't I don't believe in that, but we want to be able to enjoy these cars and not lose a ton of money on them because that's normally what happens, um, uh, with cars. So, uh, and this is going into, you know, with, with cars going up, like, like, all right, for instance, here looking at a AE 86, again, a chassis, I know fairly well. Um, there's one that was pretty clean by no means a museum piece, you know, had some little rust on it, some imperfections on the paint. All original drivetrain though, all original parts. It was being listed for $40,000 (sighs) Whoo, 40 grand for an old crusty, slow Corolla. And I can say they're slow and you can't get mad at me. Yeah. You can't say that about the 86 I can because I own one and it is slow. Okay. (laughs) Get over it. It's a slow car. Uh, It's great around corners. It's a really fun car. I'm not using that as a, uh, a derogatory term to uh, make all the um, initial D fans mad. But also, just merely owning an 86 does not make you uh, um, a driver like Takumi. I'm sorry, it doesn't. I mean, only Takumi can do what Takumi does. Just saying. Now, that said, the cars are all going up in price. Again, you look at Supras. You even look at like, oh gosh, uh, like 280ZXs. And they're still going up in price. And I think this is reflective on what has happened in generations past. Uh, for instance, you look at uh, like the Boomer generation and muscle cars, uh, and you know the, those those folks, as they get into retirement, they want cars that they aspired to have when they were younger, and just couldn't afford them. They weren't in a life position where they could have those cars, and we're very much seeing this now with um, the Millennial generation, uh, which I am a part of, and um, you know looking at cars from Fast and Furious and being like, oh man, I wanted that car ever since I was a kid you know, or seeing initial D growing up or whatever and and saying, yeah, I got to have one of those cars. And, um, you know, and this is, this is only the, I guess the cyclical nature of how people want to buy things that they had or that they wish they had, I should say, uh, when they were young and, uh, and obviously the, you know, as folks get older, you know, as uh, a lot of older folks, like you could see this with cars from like the thirties and forties and fifties, you know, back in the the nineties, those were going up crazy in value, you know, selling at auctions for huge numbers. Um, because those people who lusted after those cars wanted them. And they said, I got the money now I've got the space. I've got the time to own a classic car. Let's do it. Now, those people have more retired from owning uh classic cars and wanting to maintain them and, you know, a lot of folks, uh, like that. And it's just kind of waned off in popularity. You could see this with, um, like eighties Ferraris, which went up steeply in value and then are coming down again. And even, uh, or I shouldn't say eighties, I should say more like seventies Ferraris, uh, things like that. Now, granted, those are still very expensive cars in comparison, just because of the rarity factor that, well, it's a it's Ferrari. It's not, you know, like an old Datsun or something. But that said, you know, it, it, it is a bubble. And I think the JDM car prices bubble will eventually, it will reach a peak. And I don't think we're here at the peak yet. Um, especially as, um, eighties cars, eighties and nineties cars, the golden era of JDM cars only becomes more popular, uh, also further perpetuated by, you know, media, you know, and, um, the public fascination with the 1980s and the 1990s now. And you can thank uh, TV shows like Stranger Things for really hyping that stuff up. Everyone's got to have an 80s car now and a 90s car. And oh, the car was an initial D. I got to have it. Um, And so I think, yeah, the the prices are going up. This is nothing new, though. Uh, And I will say, if you happen to be someone who has one of these cars that is going up in value and you're like, man, I don't know if, should I drive it now? Should I should I just tuck it away and mothball it and hope that to sell it in five years as a really clean example for many, many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars? I would say no. Um, you know, I feel like I've been in a fortunate enough position to get a cheap, broken, crusty AE86 that required a whole new engine and all sorts of stuff. Nothing about it is it is original anymore, and I don't care and it's fun to drive. Um, And I I think that overall, this is um, something we should do with all cars, which is just drive them because they should just, they should just be driven, you know, that's what they're for. They're not designed to be investments. Typically cars make terrible investments. I mean, a new car off the lot uh, loses 15% of its value the day you drive it off the lot, the day it's got a name on the title. It is now a one owner car there goes 15% of your money. Um, That's a little lessened now because of the chip shortage and because cars are just trending up more expensive now because of that. But overall, I think it's terrible to see cars as an investment. And I think they should be driven the way they were meant to be, you know. And um, that's just what I think needs to be done. And you can drive them without destroying them. Just because you've got a clean low mileage example doesn't mean that the second you drive it it's gonna immediately rust into the earth i mean uh i think a car too that has more you could say provenance to use a to use a fancy word but has more of a story and a documented history instead of just yep i got the car it's been mothballed for 10 years it needs all of its gaskets and seals now Uh, it needs tires Uh, don't even get me started on how uh, original people who collect cars want original tires and rubber on them it's ridiculous in my opinion uh it's unsafe as hell but whatever um no no you know a car like that compared to another car that's well it's got some miles a few blemishes but it's been driven this car has been loved someone has taken the care to maintain this car and keep it nice despite the wear and tear that is always present when you drive a car someone is really taken the time to maintain it. The car has a story. It's been places. There's photos of it at different places. To me, that's a hell of a lot cooler than just saying, "Yeah, I've got a one owner, totally clean, 1000-mile example of a car." Like, save that for the museums. Those cars that do exist, the museums will grab them. The museums will have them at that point, especially if it's a rare enough car that people care about. Um, you know, yeah, whatever. The really low mileage ones. The the 2-mile barn find example Maybe let the museum grab that. But in all other cases, I mean, come on, drive those cars. Always keep driving. That's why we do this stuff, right? I mean, you know that we're car enthusiasts, but, you know, having a car also means driving it. And in many ways, People are also driving enthusiasts. At least that's how I feel about it. So anyway, that has been the show, the second episode of the show, the second of many. And uh, I'm going to continue to do this. Uh, We're going to be going forward. I've been doing a once every two week schedule. Now we are going to do a once a week schedule. So stay tuned right here. Same bad place, same bad time, wherever fine podcasts and this one are uh, sold or, well, I hope you didn't pay money for this, though, if you would like to pay money for it, Check out the uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. And remember to submit your car sounds to matt at throttlewarrior.com to get those featured on the show. I want to have your car sounds on my show because I'm tired of putting my car sounds into it. So uh, you know what? Do it. Tell your friends about it. Say, hey, my car's on the show. Go listen to the show. It's going to be cool. Anyway, I'm Matt, and I will uh, join you next time when I enter my flying car in a race to the death. See you then.